Your experiment today, Joel, is probably the only film about a giant mutated guy that doesn't star Ted Cassidy or Richard Keel. It's The Amazing Colossal Man. we watch season three episode nine the amazing colossal man in which a guy gets big but first some follow-up nope no follow-up actually because i haven't finished editing the last episode once again and so there's been no feedback about it so i checked in with our patreon to see if they had any questions for us at the top of the show well it's just like follow-up. It is. It is. And devoted listener Chris in our Patreon Discord asks, now that we've reached the end of the current season, where would we like the show to go from here? Ooh, that's a really good question. And one that I just haven't thought about at all yet. Do you have some ideas that you wanted to lay out there first, Chris? Well, so there's a few different ways of answering this, and, and, and that could be about the ongoing plot from season 13, where to take it next, or it can be about the structure with the different hosts and experiments like that. I'm really mostly interested in them getting a bit of their technical house in order. The Gizmoplex is great, but it's really frustrating, especially if you've purchased a package, to find where that is. Mm-hmm. Right now, mm-hmm. I have to click on a button that leads to an external link that then I have to click on another button that leads me to the right page. And that doesn't seem like the most efficient way no. to do it. And I just feel like it should know that I've purchased these episodes. I, I feel like that should be something that they and the people behind the software can can smooth out. I'd also like it to just be a monthly subscription thing where you sign up and then every month there's a new episode. And maybe it'll still work a bit like the the subscription pass, where if you ever stop your subscription, you have access to the episodes that came out while you were a member or something. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how that works. But, uh like, I don't know. That's, That's what I would like. I would like it to be easier to explain. And I would like them to put out monthly content. So you're looking for monthly content rather than like this whole, let's do a super big season drop. Yeah, I want it to be a little bit more like the Mads. I want them to do an episode a month or, or you know, an episode a month and a short a month. Or or if they want to do it and, and, and make things easier, I don't know, episode, six episodes, eight episodes, and then a few shorts in the downtime that might be easier for them to do if they need to recharge more or if it makes more sense for them to film them in bulk. I don't They, they can figure that out, but I don't want it to go to Kickstarter. <laughs> And then have it be every couple of years. I don't know. That's that, I want it. I want it to be a little more regular if they're going to do it. I wonder what's keeping them from creating it as a more um, regular subscription rather than a buy a season and then we're off for a year. Buy a season and then we're off. Like I wonder what it is. If there's something they're waiting for. If there's like a critical mass of subscribers that they need. I think they went with that just because it was easy to integrate into Kickstarter. But fair enough. Yeah. I don't know. And maybe they've talked about it in some of the after shows that I tend to drift off before they get to it. I don't know. I hope they figure something out, or at least they try something new. I'm glad that they're trying things. You know, I don't, I'm don't. i not trying to harsh on their mellow too much. And I have to say, overall, <laughs> I think season 13 was a tremendous success. You know, my favorite season since season seven. Oh, excellent. Wow. I've enjoyed everything that I've seen so far from season 13, which I haven't seen all the episodes like you have. Um, 
I would like more holiday episodes, more holiday-themed episodes. Sure. That's what I would like. I would like another Christmas episode, which, I mean, this season gave us, but, you know, maybe there's other kinds of um, holidays that they could do episodes around, because we hear it. It's just a show. Need more things to celebrate on a regular basis. Now that there isn't going to be a whole bunch of gamuaries, I think we need more themed months. <laughs> Actually, we did have a bit of follow-up in that uh, our listener, Allison, wrote in and suggested that instead of gamuary, we switch over to Kaijun. We're not doing that, but that is a brilliant <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> yes, it is! <laughs> so, so that's excellent. Oh um Anyway, those are some of our thoughts, but mostly I'm excited to see where they're going to go next. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to talk with you about today's episode. Me? Today's episode? Ooh, okay. This time we watched Season 3, Episode 9, The Amazing Colossal Man. We begin at the Nevada nuclear test site, waiting anxiously for the first test of a plutonium bomb to go off. Three, two, one. Nothing? There's been a glitch. But the bomb could still go off at any second. And then, what's that? Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Yeah, it's a plane. It's a plane flying towards the test site. Ah, what kind of fool goes for a joyride over the Nevada nuclear test site? But the pilot doesn't respond to radio demands that he leave the test area. And in fact, the plane rudely crashes to the ground. Still, the bomb hasn't gone off. What if someone's in there? Who will save them? Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Manning will, that's who. He defies orders, hops out of his bunker, runs towards the down plane, and then, boom, the bomb goes off. Glenn's skin is badly burned, but the doctors wrap him up in seaweed and bandages, and the next day, he's good as new. Which is weird. Maybe there's something to this plutonium? They take him off-site for further study. They also decide not to explain any of this to his anxious fiancée, Carol, citing security. Well, U.S. military security can kiss her pasty white butt. Carol isn't going to take this without a fight. She snoops around and figures out where they've taken him, sneaks into that facility, and... (gasps) Why, he's huge! Turns out Glenn is growing eight to ten feet a day. That's two and a half to three meters for our metric listeners. He wakes up at 22 feet tall, you can do the math, and freaks out. But he keeps growing and hanging out with Carol while the scientists try to figure out what's going on. He gets very moody and introspective, but he doesn't quite become Dr. Manhattan. It's not that elegant. Anyway, also the doctors have realized that one problem Glenn is having is that his heart isn't growing as fast as the other cells in his body. This is because the heart is only one cell. Which, what? Anyway, whatever. Glenn is depressed, and he lashes out verbally against Carol, telling her to leave. But that night, he runs away into the desert. And what timing, just when the doctors have figured out how to fix Glenn, to inject something or other into his bone marrow, and then stimulate his pituitary gland to reduce his size. They practiced that last part on an elephant and a camel, who are now cat-sized. Super cute! Anyway, the army is chasing after Glenn, who's tromping towards fabulous Las Vegas. He pokes about the casinos and gathers a small crowd of terrified onlookers, but then it's off to Hoover Dam. 
the army finally tracks him down, and they've brought the biggest needle ever in order to inject him with the serum. Glenn doesn't really appreciate the sharp needle, though, and he picks it up and uses it as a spear to kill one of the scientists. And then he picks up Carol, King Kong style, and then he heads to the dam. The army convinces him to put Carol down, and then they shoot him off the side of the dam with a bazooka. Splat! Goes the amazing Colossal Man. The end. Or is it? Meanwhile, on the Satellite of Love, there's chores to be done. So much chores. But the bots refuse to come out of their cardboard clubhouse. Joel can threaten their little metal hinders all he wants. But the cries of anarchy will be heard loud and clear from Crow everywhere. TV's Frank predicts a difficult future for Joel with these bots and attributes it to his lackadaisical discipline methods. But little does he know, this whole episode will be a masterclass in human empathy for these bots. Just wait and see. And we will have to wait and see until after the invention exchange. The Mads tamper in Gad's domain and create a plant that reviews music. The gang on the SOL create magic screen tattoos that erase and let you write new things so you can switch your affection from the abandoned Mingo to Beth, who we will never abandon and we will always love. We miss you, Beth. The masterclass in Human Empathy begins after a little bit of movie, using the very painful situation in the movie, a fiancé whose love has become a burn victim. Joel encourages the bots to come up with better ways to speak to her than the doctors do in this movie. Tom and Crow have horrible suggestions, though not any worse than the riffing they all do in the movie. Human bratwurst, anyone? No? The bots insist they are sensitive when it actually happens in the situation, pointing out that they almost never mention the terrible situation Joel himself is in to his face. Second attempt, Joel puts himself in a room and role-plays the gigantic man, trying to elicit empathy again from the bots. But how does one comfort the amazing colossal man? Hey, that's the name of the movie. By asking him his favorite monkey? Mine is was Michael Nesmith. Oh, you cruel bots, twisting everything into one of your little jokes. The masterclass must have had some success, though, because in the next movie break, Joel and the bots meet Glenn, who has now grown so huge he can be seen towering into space. And the bots do avoid the tall guy cliché comments and ask, better questions, giving this giant a chance to reflect on roles he's had since Amazing Colossal, like that one in Time Bandits. So maybe the teachings of Joel have had some effect on the bots after all. After the movie, the SOL's crew suggests things they might have done in Glenn's shoes to have more fun with being big, like eat the corn palace as a crunchy munchy treat. Yum! A letter asks the crew to make the show longer, so they (gasps) hold their breath. Amazing! Joel lets Crow say, what do you think, sirs? And Frank may finally know what hurts, as Dr. F sticks him with the biggest needle I've ever seen. Colossal! What do you think, sirs? (laughs) 
Oh, some more marvelous business, as they say, with Crow at the end there when he's whispering to Joel as Tom is reading out the address to send your cards and letters to. And it turns out that what he's asking for is just to be able to say, what do you think, sirs? I know. It's so awesome. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but this is, you know, it's a season three episode. It's full of these little details. It's full of just tremendous amounts of warmth between Joel and the bots. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I get so cozy with these kinds of episodes. <laughs> I know. They have such fantastic mischievousness between all of them. And I like that Joel is, like, trying to teach them how to be more than just the, like, sarcastic bots that he could make with the, uh, you know, the parts that control when the movie begins or ends. Exactly. I don't know. I haven't seen this episode in a long time, and I really liked it. What did you think of it? I enjoyed the episode. I I mean, the movie is a little... um, The movie is a little boring. Um, But I think that's kind of the point, right? Like, how much can you do when the storyline is, the guy gets huge, and they can't fix him, and then they have to push him off a dam? I don't know. Like, how much can you do with that storyline? You can do a lot more. Because... As you may or may not know, this movie is an attempt to cash in on another movie that had become very popular and was released just a few months before this one was, called The Incredible Shrinking Man. Oh, but that's totally different. I mean, how many things have been in the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids canon? There's like seven of those movies or something. Being little is fascinating. Being big is just scary. Well, maybe. But I finally decided to watch The Incredible Shrinking Man this morning. Oh, how was it? Uh, Have you seen it? I haven't ever seen it, no. It? is pretty good, I have oh. to say. because And you can see a lot of its reflections in this movie in that it is a very psychological drama, right? The first half of the movie is a really deftly, quickly told story of like this guy who is very much living the life he thinks he's supposed to be living as a 1950s American white male and, uh, you know, bossing his wife around or trying to and so forth. Sure. And then suddenly he's shrinking and like... I don't know if you know this about men, but they can be very sensitive about size issues. <laughs> what? I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, stereotypical men, et cetera. But, like, they feel like they're supposed to. Anyway, so he gets smaller and smaller, and it becomes a huge personal conflict for him, as well as being a, an existential thing, like, what is going to happen at the end of this? But, like, mostly he's moping about the fact that he doesn't feel like a human anymore. Like, he doesn't feel like a real man. Oh, which Glenn does in this movie as well. Do you have the sense that the amazing shrinking man is, like, losing his mind? Because I think they're really trying to push that in the amazing colossal man, is that he's losing his mind as this is happening. Like, the mind is the first thing to go! So he is losing it a bit, but then he gets so small that he loses all contact with human beings. The second half of the movie is an adventure sequence without much dialogue at all in the basement when he's trapped in there. And he's like, gotta find food. Oh, God, there's a spider. Better get this nail and try to use it as a sword. How will I survive? And part of it is that he's on his own and he's fighting for himself And this makes him more of a man than ever before, in a certain sense, right? He's become Mm self-determined. And it ends with, like, I know that no matter what happens, there's nothing so small that it isn't recognized and its value seen by God. And, like, ends with a montage of, like, pictures of atoms that look like universes and so forth. Oh it my god! It goes hard at the end. It's a movie that it's hard to, like agree with, but it's really well done and it's totally worth watching. Huh. 
much more so than the amazing Colossal Man, which really just seems like an excuse for having a circus tent. (laughs) You know, this time around when I was watching it, I was liking the movie more than I remembered liking it. And partially it was because of the movie's sort of big questions about, like, why do terrible things happen randomly to people? No, that's a fair question. He even makes a line about, like, what sin could a man commit in a single lifetime to bring this upon himself? Which is a terrible way of thinking about disease and disability. Yes. But nevertheless, the movie is trying to grapple with this. It's just not very well written, not very well acted. But there's something there that it's grappling with. Like, the movie has a point. And I appreciate that point a little bit. And then I watched, you know, The Incredible Shrinking Man, which does all of that way better. So, you know, really put me in check. Again, sometimes this show just lowers my standards to the floor. (laughs) It's kind of weird. I do have to say, I found it very strange. I mean, I was thinking, if this had happened in real life and this guy was really growing bigger and bigger, and they were accommodating him by bringing in tents and huge amounts of food and all this sort of thing, don't you think the doctors would have talked to him? (laughs) once. Like, hey, we're planning this thing. You know what? We're trying all of these experiments, and I think we're really close to doing something, or we're really close to figuring something out for you. I'm really sorry, man, that we haven't figured this out yet, but I know we're working on this thing, and we'd like you just to hold on. You know, like, they never once talk to him. They're all just like, well, his girl's here. Let's just have her talk to him, because he's totally going to believe whatever she tells him. And he doesn't, right? Like, part of the conflict of this movie is the nobody talks to him about what's happening to him. And that must be so infuriating, right? I don't know if that shows up in The Shrinking Man as well, where it's just like, I don't know what's happening, and I don't know why, and I don't know what anybody's doing for me. Like, where are we going with this? At least, I guess The Amazing Colossal Man knows why he's getting larger and larger, but he doesn't even really seem to know that they're trying to fix him. The doctors are far better in The Incredible Shrinking Man. They both talk to him and keep him informed, and they admit when they don't know what's going on, but they talk about what they're going to try. They talk about the risks. They say, we figured something out. It looks like it should work in the lab. It may not work on you. They're, like They're good communicators. And at no point do they try to keep his wife away from him. Yeah. And they don't have one doctor being like, I don't think that's going to work. None of this is going to work. Like, why are we even trying? This is stupid. Why are we doing this? Like, that was just the weirdest doctor character ever. He's like, I got this brilliant idea, but none of this is going to work. Also, I have to say, The Incredible Shrinking Man has a starring role for Orangey. Orangey? Orangey, the cat. <gasps> the cat! <gasps> the most amazing cat in all film? Yes, I saw him and I was like, oh, that's Orangey, isn't it? And it was. Orangey, who was also in This Island Earth, who was also in Breakfast at Tiffany's, who was also in Bird Eye Gordon's film Village of the Giants, which was, in fact, his last film. We talked about him a bit in that episode. Uh, he also recently watched his first film, Rhubarb, which is the one in which he inherits a baseball team. It's not a what? good movie. But it's a silly movie. (laughs) But it's not even like a good at being silly movie. It is currently on the Criterion channel. Also, I should say, this is a Bird Eye Gordon film, as you can tell, because something gets really big. (laughs) In a culture obsessed with size, he dominates. Bird Eye Gordon, who was known as Mr. B.I.G., Mr. Big, because it was his initials, (laughs) who gave us eight films that have been riffed on MSC3K. Wow who is still with us at time of recording 
at 100 years old. Nice! Congratulations. Happy birthday a couple months ago, Mr. Gordon. Uh, this is fantastic. I'm so glad that we're going to take a little time and celebrate this fun movie. Maybe that's also why I particularly enjoyed it, because Bird Eye Gordon is now 100 <laughs> years old and a national treasure. <laughs> So, Charlotte, I mentioned to you that this movie, The Amazing Colossal Man, was made as a response to The Incredible Shrinking Man. Mm -hmm. But when it became time to come up with something to cash in on that man-changes-size craze, they needed a hot property to convert into a movie. Oh, hot property to convert into a movie. That sounds like it should be easy to find. Yes. So in order to make this film, they purchased the rights to, well, it wasn't a book, but it was a short novel-length story that appeared in Amazing Stories Quarterly. Ooh. What's Amazing Stories Quarterly? When did it publish? Oh, it's one of those pulp magazines from back in the day with the lurid illustrations and all that great stuff. Fabulous. This was from the spring 1928 edition of Amazing Stories Quarterly. Back when things were still growing big and getting bigger all the time. Exactly. And it was a story written by a guy named Homer Eon Flint. Who I'm sure has an amazing author credit to give besides that. Well, he was a pulp writer. He's, I think, well-remembered for being a good pulp writer, if you're into that sort of thing. He died in 1924 under mysterious circumstances. Hold on. This was published in 28, but he died in 24? Yep. So I, I don't know the full story behind that. Huh. But his Wikipedia article says he died under mysterious circumstances. His body found at the bottom of a canyon underneath a stolen taxi. What? What? And you know, I went and read the book that this is based on, <gasps> and I believe that story. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm gonna I wanna tell you all about the novel that they bought the rights to to make the amazing colossal man. Okay. It's called The Nth Man. Okay. Like NTH is in the numerical term. Yep. Uh, first off, though, I will say uh, you can. I'll, we'll have a link in the show notes to the archive.org copy of Amazing Stories Quarterly that you can go read this if you want to. The first sentence of the story is Beyond a doubt, a child in a bathing suit appeals to the whole world. There is something universally <gasps> no. enjoyable in the frisking white legs, the dancing eyes, and wild laughter. This is about a nine-year-old girl on the beach that he's talking I'm, about. Am I supposed to be creeped out right now? Because everything that you just said just creeps me out. And maybe I'm looking at it from some very strange perspective, but I'm a little creeped out. Yeah, it's it's it reads creepy, especially these days. I don't think it was supposed to then, but no, it doesn't go anywhere in terms of in terms of creeping on children. It just starts real okay. hard with that. So I wanted to let you know about that first. We okay. can ignore that now. Okay. What happens is uh, there are mysterious things happening all over the world. In fact, that little girl's going to fall off the side of a cliff and then unexplainably and mysteriously be brought back and sort of pushed back up top what? after she's fallen off and is stranded on the rocks. Oh. I know. She's fine. She's saved by some mysterious force. Hmm. Similar things happen elsewhere in the world. And I'm going to describe some of them to you, and I want you to understand that they're all put in the context where this happening is a good thing that proves something that the author is trying to let us feel is good, such as the head of the Sphinx is removed, and it's placed upon a, a pyramid. What? A black crepe, like a like a, a dress-type crepe fabric, is hung on the Statue of Liberty, 
even though the crepe clearly came from Tibet. <gasps> An attempt to undermine democracy in Europe by monarchist pseudo-anarchists mm -hmm. <laughs> is stopped by the destruction, wholesale, of a bank. Whoa! And overnight, the Great Wall of China disappears. Whoa! That part is super racist because it disappears and therefore the Chinese can suddenly see beyond the boundaries that they'd enclose themselves in with or some such nonsense. Ugh, come on! Many years later, in 1933, well after the story was written, right, the little girl has all grown up and uh, has fallen in love with a kid of privilege, and his father does not want the two to marry because, as he tells him for the first time, he has become the secret dictator of the United States. Stop it! And Bertram, his son, will be crowned emperor tomorrow. What?! But what? that isn't but that isn't going to happen because tomorrow, the next morning, the person behind all these mysterious events, the nth man himself, arrives in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Fitting. Comes out of the water because he's been traveling around the world through the water. Sure. Fixing things that are wrong, like a little gamera. Friend to all children. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he steps up and he is nine thousand one hundred and ninety-eight feet tall, just under two miles, or I don't know, 50 million kilometers in metric. I can still not get those right. Fair enough. So he's massive, and he starts marching across America, and he walks all the way across America, including stepping into Ontario, which was, quote, formerly a province of a separate commonwealth, but now one of the states of the North American Union. No. There's no detail about it except that. Anyway, what? he goes to D.C., and he demands to speak to the president, and he says that the U.S. is secretly being ruled by one man who has financed the president's election. He gives him six months for substantial financial reform. Okay. That sounds nothing like the movie we watched, Chris. I'm okay, waiting hold on. for you we, to we, get to We the haven't part. gotten to that second half. We gotta <laughs> get to the... <laughs> My mind is being blown. I have no idea what's going to happen. Like, this is all so completely weird. And I'm trying to, like, hook it into something that happened in our movie today. And it hasn't happened yet. So you got to keep going. Okay. Uh, I should also say he's covered in like this hard brown material, like like it's really hard skin kind of thing that's happening all, all uh -huh. over him. Like a walnut shell? Yeah, more like, well, more like Gamera in a certain oh, sense. Oh, okay, it's there like, you go. Mm -hmm. it's, like, uh, it's like that. So, uh, so, so maybe he is Gamera. I don't know. Maybe oh. it's secretly a Gamera episode. Who knows? <laughs> um, the president spends his six months deciding whether he wants to do some substantial financial reform and decides, nah, I like having all the money and power. And then a quick war happens that takes place over one day as the nth man emerges in New Orleans and heads north, being attacked all the way by, you know, the military. Uh-huh. Tracks down the president who is hiding just south of San Francisco now. And the president surrenders. The nth man demands... Oh, my gosh. ...for the surrender that all but $100,000 be taken away from the guy who runs everything. And that financial reform be enacted immediately to prevent future rule by one man, and that everyone who fought against him offers themselves to him as food. <laughs> so, is the guy who's in charge of everything going to give himself up? No, no, no one gives themselves up, ever. The nth man is about to eat him when that little girl, who's now a woman, who's now been prevented by this man who's about to be eaten from marrying her true love, runs up to him and stops him. And says, you can't eat him. You can't. I know your backstory. You can't. There's a long story. I skipped out a few details. Okay. Here's the backstory. Who is the nth man? Well. <laughs> I, yeah, this is where it's going to tie in with the movie, I promise. Are you sure? <laughs> I mean. 
In 1909, a man named George Pendleton was going to California Medical College in San Francisco. Uh -huh. He was making money on the side as a chauffeur. There was a young woman that he was driving around. They fell in love. It's a scandal because she's very rich. But they decide to secretly get married. She gets pregnant. But as he's about to graduate and she's about to give birth, they decide that they have to tell her mother what's going on. And her mother is so scandalized that she does some behind-the-scenes manipulation with her richy rich connections. And... George is refused his diploma because of his terrible ethics. What? George's wife, the mother-to-be, is despondent, hides away in a cabin, and by the time George is able to track her down, has taken her own life. <gasps> George, a doctor, if not a diplomat one, manages to safely remove the baby from her PSC section. Oh my gosh. George and his son, who he's named Park, and a Spanish woman that he's hired to mother the kid in, you know, lack of a real mother, they decide to get out of town and make a new life. Where would you go if you were them? I I, I don't know, because I'm still waiting for this to connect to the movie. Uh That's right, the Galapagos <laughs> Islands. Oh! Hey, you know what? If I wanted to live a new life, I would totally go there. It's a great place. Sure. Quote, although now internationalized, at that time they belonged to Ecuador. Stop it. <laughs> this is such a weird future past. Okay, so while he's in Ecuador... The father decides to do an experiment on his child and injects him with the vital fluids from the thyroids and other glands of the giant tortoises that live on the Galapagos oh, Island. And gosh. so he, the baby grows tremendously, his skin becomes turtly, and the tortoises go extinct. What? Yep. What? That's why there are no more Galapagos giant turtles. <laughs> This is the weirdest future past I've ever heard. The doctor then tells his son to go out there <laughs> and seek revenge upon the rich man who ruined his life. The rich man didn't ruin, ruin that kid's life, though. The rich man who was in control of America later turns out to have been the person that the mother turned to to get George kicked out of medical school. Oh, my god! So gosh. he says, go get revenge against him. But in the end, it turns out that he can't because as the little girl from the beginning points out, that there was actually that woman's father. And this, therefore, is your grandfather or great-grandfather. I don't remember. Something like that. Oh, yeah. So you can't kill your own great-grandfather. So the nth man decides not to. And that is the end of the story. Okay. I've read a lot of books that have nothing to do with the movies that they were made into on this show, but nothing has come so close as having absolutely no that was context. Shocking. Shockingly not. I mean, Chris, I have to hand it to them. There was a very large man. There was a very large man who got shot at by military people. Yes. I don't think they needed to have the rights to the nth man in order to tell a very large man story, but I think it went through a few script revisions. I think it might have. I think they might have gotten rid of like 99% of that story because I don't even know how they, I don't, I cannot eat. That is, how did that, how is that in a serial magazine? Like, this sounds like that would have to be like a hundred million pages long to have all of that stuff happen. I mean, unless they're just like, you know, and this part of Canada is now not anymore. And this part of Ecuador is not anymore. And let's just redo the whole world. No, they don't go into any detail about any of that. This is a short novel. I think somebody actually is selling it as its own book now, but. 
they don't, you know, it's oh out of copyright, gosh. so you can do that. Um, but I assume it's a very thin volume. The illustrations are also delightful. There's um, illustrations? Yeah, there's several, like, full-page illustrations of this, like, turtle man. It's really great. Nice. Okay, well, I want to see the illustrations. There's no question about that. You're going to have to put them with our show notes or something. Yes. Well, exactly. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. I'm sorry. I spoiled everything. Maybe I played the spoiler warning at the beginning of the segment. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's still worth poking about in any ways. That is, the story is wild. It's so pulpy. It's so, it was so like bad and good at the same time. No idea that there was a place in Vegas that had a really big shoe on the roof. Yes, there was. There isn't any more, but there absolutely was. I mean, they still have the cowboy sign and some of the other parts of old Vegas, but not the, what was it, the silver slipper? Is that what the it was? Silver slipper, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Vegas, you know, has gone under a lot of changes over the years. Let's just put it mildly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And had just gone under a tremendous amount of changes when this movie made. There was a huge boom in the middle of the 50s that built up the strip as we know it today, basically. Started to build it up, obviously. It's a little bit bigger now. Yeah. And the strip is in a different place than it used to be. Well, no, this was the beginning of the modern strip. So this is Uh, when we're starting to move away from downtown. So the Silver Slipper was, I believe, downtown. But some of the other... The thing with the king crown? The thing with the king crown. Yep, that was on the modern strip. That was one of the three hotels that were all built within a few weeks of each other in 1955, just two years before this movie was made, that caused kind of a glut in the market. And that meant that they all did very poorly. Uh, But Dunes, the Riviera, and the Royal Nevada all opened up right about the same time. One of those, the Dunes, which has the man in the turban... Uh-huh. The Sultan statue on it uh, is now the Bellagio. It's the same oh. site, I mean, not the same owners. Have you, you've been to Vegas, I'm, I I know, because I've been there with you. But Have we been to Vegas at the same time? Oh, yes, of yes, course we, we have. Well, oh, our my band gosh. was on tour. Yes. We were in Vegas at the same time, but very I briefly. Forgot. And we didn't like do a Vegas trip. We were just no. in town to play a show. I've never done a proper, like, we are going to like drink and gamble hard kind of trip. Sure. And let's be ashamed of what we do in this kind of a trip, that sort of thing. You've never done one of those. (laughs) Exactly. But you don't have to. Like, this is one of the fun things about the Vegas of these days is that you can have that experience if you want, but it can also be super family friendly or ish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It can be super chill. Like, I don't gamble, especially. I will sometimes put in a few coins in a slot machine, but I don't gamble. And I don't get, like, excessively drunk or excessively party mode. I know you're all surprised listeners, but that's just not what I do. Shocking. I'm shocked. But Vegas is like Disneyland without Disney, right? Like it's <laughs> it's you're just wandering around these wild architectural spaces with lots of noise and lights and where you lose all sense of time and uh, and and you know, it, there's lots of sp- Neat things to see. You can you can go to the Bellagio and you could see the 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 dancing water or whatever. You can go to buffets and have totally inc- or restaurants and have incredibly good food because you know they they are there to please. Yeah, um, you can see a pirate battle. You can go to Paris. You can go to Venice. You can go to everywhere in the world. You can also go to Margaritaville. You can, and you can go downtown and see the old Vegas, the original yep. set of casinos. Although many of those have changed hands or have been redone over the years uh, at the Fremont Street Experience. In fact, when they built the Fremont Street Experience, which is this like 
old Vegas street that they've covered over, and there's like a light show that happens on top of it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun and kind of tacky at the same time, like much <laughs> of Vegas. Uh, yes. But when they built that, the cowboy sign that we see in the movie, whose name is Vegas Vic, they had to alter him a bit. They had to cut a bit off his hat to make <gasps> it fit. What? So it's an eight-gallon hat now instead of ten? Exactly. Which is not the first time that Vegas Vic had some surgery done to him. (laughs) Um, Apparently, he used to say, There's a snake in my boot. Someone's poisoned the water hole. He used to say, Howdy, partner. Um, Nice. Nice. (laughs) And then you'd say that every 15 minutes. And then uh, Lee Marvin was filming The Professionals, and he complained that it was too loud. So they shut the voice off, and it was shut off for about two decades until the 80s. Um, uh, the arm used to wave as well, but that broke at some point. They've repainted his shirt a few times, um, like all these things. And and also it's tried to, they've restored it to try to recreate its original appearance. Like, this is all very Vegas. There are all sorts of attempts to both implode buildings and build them new and add extensions and tear down other things, while also many attempts, by some people at least, to preserve the, the neon signs. Like, there's a whole museum for the neon signs, which sadly I've never been to, but it sounds pretty amazing. It's on your list for the next time you're in Vegas, I'm sure. Exactly. So we get to see, uh, by my count, seven different casinos uh, in this movie, many of which were relatively new at the time, and many of which have some interesting features. There's the one with the crown on it, as you said. Mm -hmm. There's the one with the, the shoe on it. The shoe one is actually pretty interesting because it would rotate around, as you saw in the movie. Mm -hmm. And in 1968, the casino that it was on top of, the Silver Slipper, was bought by Howard Hughes. Oh, my goodness. I can't even imagine what he would have done with that. Well, he bought it specifically to do one thing to it, which was to shut it down. (gasps) Yep. He did not like the slipper rotating. He did not like the fact that people could go into the slipper. I, I don't know whether that was to work on it or if it was- Or if a, it was a, like the crown of the Statue of Liberty where you could go in and look out on all of Vegas. Exactly. That would have been cool. I would have totally done that. I know. But Howard Hughes wanted it sealed up because it looked onto his penthouse and he was worried about photographers oh because gosh. it was Howard Hughes and he was like that. Nah, Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I mean, buy some curtains or buy the casino and shut it down. I mean, when you have wealth at that level, I I know what choice he would make, but I'm not sure I would make the same. How many of the hotels that we see in the movie do you think are still open? Oh, my goodness. You said we saw seven different casinos? Yes, by my count. Two of them. Just one. Oh, which one? The Tropicana, which is the one that has that weird plumy flower statue, and then like the, the car park, very modernist looking uh, surface. The Tropicana, it opened in 1957, the year the film was being made. The flower statue that is there was removed in the 70s. Nothing about it, as far as I can tell, retains the same architecture. But <laughs> but like the ship of Theseus, where each part keeps getting replaced, this is still the same Tropicana, even if none of the parts are the same. I mean, Chris, that's a philosophical question that people have still been arguing about, whether, about whether when you replace every piece of the Argo every seven years, it's still the original Argo. You are now claiming that even though the Tropicana has been completely replaced piece by piece, it's still the original Tropicana. I think you could get yourself in some trouble here. Bring it on. Bring it on, <laughs> philosophers. I'm ready. Okay? I've cut that Gordian knot, too. Okay? Come on. <laughs> It's time for the Shallow 13. 13 amazing colossal mini facts 
about today's experiment, The Amazing Colossal Man. Go, Charlotte, go! Our amazing colossal man, Glenn, grows to be enormous, but remains completely bald, and so he reminds Joel and the bots of a few other famous bald people, such as Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner was born in Vladivostok, Russia, in 1920. Or, actually, okay, this is complicated. In 1920, the October Revolution had already happened, but Soviet Russia hadn't yet organized itself into the Soviet Union, and Soviet Russia didn't yet include the territory around Vladivostok. That was a briefly semi-independent puppet state called the Far Eastern Republic, or the Chita Republic, after its capital city, Chita. Huh. Anyway... Yul Brenner moved around a lot when he was young, even spending some time in Paris. But in 1940, he moved to the U.S. with hardly any English. A year later, he was performing on Broadway in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. He had a bit part, very few lines, and a thick accent. But still, he was on Broadway. And eventually, he landed his most famous role in Roger and Hammerstein's musical, The King and I. He played the king. He won a Tony for the role, and then it was filmed, and he won an Oscar. And then there was a 1972 sitcom called Anna and the King, and he starred in that too. And the show was canceled halfway through its first season, faster than you can say, etc., etc., etc. Glenn also gets compared to Peter Garrett twice, both in the riffings and when Mike plays him in a sketch. Peter Garrett is the lead singer of the Australian rock band Midnight Oil, which had a brief flirtation with mainstream American success in the late 80s and early 90s. I've seen them in concert. They are perhaps best remembered for their song, Beds Are Burning, all about the forced resettlement of indigenous peoples. Yay! This serious subject matter brought the single to number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in 1988. Amazing. We'll have a link to a Todd in the Shadows video all about the song in the show notes. Apparently, Glenn also looks a bit like Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Brando plays Colonel Kurtz, based loosely on Mr. Kurtz from Joseph Conrad's novel Heart of Darkness. He shaved his head for that role because apparently Hollywood thinks baldness signifies being evil. Oh, also, Daddy Warbucks. You know, from Annie? Daddy Warbucks was introduced in the original Little Orphan Annie comic strips back in 1924, and Edgar Kennedy portrayed him in a 1932 film, but you probably know the 1982 musical film best, with a freshly shaved Albert Finney as Daddy Warbucks. With a name like Daddy Warbucks, you might think that the character was supposed to be a sort of parody of rich industrialists who profit off the military-industrial complex. But no, the character served as a sock puppet for the political views of its creator, the cartoonist Harold Gray. He loved the free market, and he deeply believed that the rich need to work hard to create jobs for everyone else. The musical moves this character in a different direction. Glenn is also as bald as Mr. Clean, Procter & Gamble's cleansing product mascot. Mr. Clean was first portrayed in TV commercials in 1958 by character actor House Peters Jr., And House Peters is 100% a name you'd want to pass along to your children. And, for the record, House Peters Jr. never appeared in Bonanza, but he did appear in Gunsmoke. 
Glenn also gets compared to Sinead O'Connor, or as Crow says, It's Sinead. Yeah, nothing compares to you. She also had a brief brush with mainstream fame with her version of Nothing Compares to You in 1990, but she also got into some hot water for pointing out that maybe the Catholic Church shouldn't be aiding and abetting priests who sexually abuse kids. Needless to say, America reacted badly to this. Also, we should add that her name is now Shahuda Sadakat, a name she adopted upon converting to Islam in 2018, though... It appears she's still fine if people call her by her birth name. And finally, Glenn looks a lot like the villain in the 1981 film Time Bandits. That villain, known as the evil genius, but you can call him evil, was played by David Warner, who you may also remember from Quest of the Delta Knights Rift in Season 9. And that's time. Chris, I am sure that at the point in time in the movie where they are walking into the medical facility and Joel riffs Adam and Eve on a raft and wreck them as if it's a diner, that you totally perked up to that phrase. <laughs> Adam and Eve on a raft and wreck them. I did. Although is it wreck them or rack them? Wreck them is what they say. I thought rack them meant put them on a plate. So... I had my closed captioning on, and my closed captioning said that it was Wreckham. And <laughs> you cannot also, trust that closed captioning. No, I totally can't. But I decided that I wanted to look into some diner talk. And one of the phrases that is a part of diner talk is Wreckham for scrambled eggs. Oh, all right. Well, maybe maybe I'm wrong. So I think Wreckham is what they say. I, I, I mean, obviously, we can't be sure because, you know, you're right. Closed caption. You just can't trust it. But Adam and Eve on a raft and Wreckham would be two, two eggs, eggs on, on toast. toast. Scrambled. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Also, it's a beautiful image about the fall of man. Well, in sure. The Bible. But really, what isn't about this movie? I mean, <laughs> the amazing colossal man is a beautiful image about the fall of man. <laughs> he fell really far and really hard. He totally did. I know. Um, but anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about diner speak, and then I wanted to put some phrases of diner speak in front of you and see how many of them you can get right. Are you ready? Ready to be quizzed on diner speak? I have not reviewed for this exam, but I have read articles and, and read up on diner speak in the past. It's been a while, but I, you know, it's I, I, I love these little coves and inlets of language <laughs> that. Uh, you know, pop up. So I'm all for it. I want to hear more diner talk. Here's a few of them, and I'm just going to say what they are. And I want you to think about it and decide what you think it is. Now, keep in mind that this is diners, right? This is going to be waitresses talking to short order cooks. They're going to be giving a lot of information about what diners are looking for. And so they're using phrases that are hopefully going to help that cook, that chef, to know what they're supposed to make. And it should be clear. Right. So... It's only going to be clear, of course, if you speak the dialect, and that's what we're learning to do now. So are you ready? I am ready. I'm hungry. So here are a few different phrases that could mean the same thing. Baby juice, moo juice. Yeah, this is all milk. Cow juice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Adam's ale. That's City water. juice, water. Very nice. That, uh, spoilers, but that was one of the questions on a game show 1939 <gasps> episode. No way! 
Hey, yeah. look at that. How about belch water or balloon water? Gotta be like soda or seltzer. Very good. Look at you. Because it's bubbly. It's going to make your tummy expand. Absolutely. Here's a common one that I saw on a lot of lists. Burn the British. <laughs> that's just good. No. Um, that's... <laughs> Burn the British. Okay, uh-huh. what do British is it is it uh is it toasted English muffins? It is okay. See, when you did your uh, match game with me, I couldn't get a single thing right. I feel like I should be giving you some more difficult things. So I'm gonna start doing that. All right, all right, try me, try me. Here's one that I think you can get though. Heart attack on rack. Heart attack on rack. A heart attack is gonna be something that's very Greasy or on a rack. Mm-hmm. Heart attack on a rack. What's a rack? It is going to be a hamburger on top of ribs. Oh, I wish. It's supposed to be biscuits and gravy. Oh, oh now that you say it, I have heard that one before. Yep. But, heart, the heart attack uh, coming from the gravy, because that's going to be heavy with sausage grease. And then the rack being the biscuits. Yeah. Yep. yep. Totally. Also one that's kind of evokes an image. Zeppelins in a fog. <laughs> okay, zeppelins in a fog. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be something in some kind of sauce. Zeppelins, zeppelins could either be sausages or like hard boiled eggs, but probably sausages with like, well, I guess sausages with gravy. Close sausages with mashed potatoes. Oh, that's the fog. That's the fog. Very Mm. nice, though. You got the Zeppelin part. Come on. That's very good. I've studied poetry. (laughs) And that's all diner speak is. Really, it's just poetry. It is. It's just metaphor. Absolutely. Right? It's just Kennings. It's just like Vikings speaking in Kennings, which was this way of talking around something, circumlocutions that became sort of hardened phrases. So... You'd have instead of a, instead of a an axe, you might have a a blood drawer or something. That's Ooh. not a real example. I'm just making it up. <laughs> but like they would become these phrases, and so you'd see them again and again, especially in poetry. And it became a whole art. It's very much like what's going on in the diner. Mm, and since they love the alliteration, it's so good to have different ways to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Here's another diner speak one for you. I think this one's a little weird. I wouldn't have gotten it. Noah's boy with Murphy carrying a wreath. <laughs> Noah's boy is ham with Murphy. That's oil? Oh, well, no, or is it something Irish? Carrying a wreath? So, carrying a wreath. You're so good with the Irish. Uh, yeah, what would be Irish that would go with ham? Um, is it is it some kind of, like, ham and cheese sandwich with maybe some lettuce? Close. Not lettuce, but cabbage. So the wreath is cabbage, and the Murphy is potatoes. Of course. Oh, I feel so non-racist. <laughs> but I, isn't it amazing? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally cabbage and cabbage and potatoes and ham, right? Mm-hmm. Ham yeah. is Noah's boy. Yeah, which I totally wouldn't have gotten because, you know, a biblical scholar, I am not. That is just the name of one of Noah's Noah's sons. Bible, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so ham jokes at Bible scholars. Go hand in hand. Hand in hand. Or ham and ham, if you like. Oh, stop it. That was terrible. Anyway. It was such a good pun. How about put out the lights and cry? Put out the lights and cry. Okay. Cry's going to be onions. Absolutely. Liver and onions. Liver and onions. Woo, you are so good. Why is that put out the lights? 
I don't know. Okay. I don't know, man, because I got to say there's nothing I like about liver and onions. (laughs) That's not true. I like the onion part, but not the liver part. You're the one on the podcast in charge of tasting meat products. Um, Yes, I think we'll both take a pass on the liver. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Last one I want to give you is a jack. G-A-C. Jack. All right, Jack. G-A-C. Mm-hmm. G-A-C, but it's Jack, not a Gack, because that would be slime. Yeah. Um, G-A-C, so that sounds like it's an acronym then, and it's an acronym where the G has to stand for something that's pronounced J rather than G, so like, what could that be? Giraffe, <laughs> Geronimo, <laughs> and something, something and something is going to be Dravy and Cookies. <laughs> I that actually sounds awful. Um, <laughs> grilled American cheese sandwich. Oh, grilled though. That's also not pronounced. With a, why would it be Jack and not Gack? So because there's a follow up of a Jack Benny, which is a grilled American cheese sandwich with bacon. And that's a Jack. Oh, because it's a Jack Benny because it's got because it's got bacon. Because it's got bacon and bacon is Benny because B. I guess. And Jack Benny is very funny, but I, he's yeah. You know. As is an American cheese sandwich with bacon. I mean, there's just so much oil and fat inside of that. Like, <laughs> yeah. wow. Yeah. I mean, but that's what diners are for, right? The greasy spoon. Oh, Chris, amazing, colossal episode. But <laughs> we clearly haven't talked about everything that's possible. You must have some sort of a closing final factoid for us i do i want to talk about one more thing although there's a lot more we could say about this episode i'm sure very much we might get another chance who knows who knows um here's the thing what i'm about to bring up is going to sound like i'm trying to you know well actually cinema sins this movie and i'm not i understand that fiction does not need to follow the laws of our own reality especially this kind of fiction which is telling a parable about a man's existential dread and like what it means to be a person and what it means when bad things happen to you and also how fun it would be to pick up shoes in Las Vegas and, and you know, play with them. Yes. Yes. But this is an aspect of nature that I find fascinating because there is a whole thing about what happened or what would happen if you became bigger or smaller or if you made an animal very, very big or very, very small. Mm-hmm. So in 1928, a guy named J.B.S. Haldane published an essay called On Being the Right Size. Oh, it just sounds like the perfect name for something. <laughs> On Being the Right Size. You're perfect just the way you are. Yes. We'll have a link in the show notes. But he says early on, let us consider a giant man 60 feet high. About the height of Giant Pope and Giant Pagan in the illustrated Pilgrim's Progress of my childhood. These monsters were not only ten times as high as Christian, the main character in Pilgrim's Progress, but ten times as wide and ten times as thick, so that their total weight was a thousand times his, or about 80 to 90 tons. Unfortunately, the cross-sections of their bones were only a hundred times those of Christian, so that every square inch of giant bone had to support ten times the weight borne by one square inch of human bone. 
As the human thigh bone breaks under about ten times the human weight, Pope and Pagan would have broken their thighs every time they took a step. This was doubtless why they were sitting down in the picture, I remember. But it lessens one's respect for Christian and Jack the Giant Killer. Uh, it's a fun essay. We'll have a link in the show notes. It goes on talking about the effects of gravity, etc. Uh, it ends by trying to extend this idea into politics and that political structures that work on small scales may not work on larger scales. And this is part of an anti-socialism message. Um, he's a little bit less careful in his argumentation there. Yeah, I mean, it's also an argument for why you can't have an emperor of the United States, right? As we have seen, should not happen inside of a very famous story from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> exactly. So you can go to that essay, or if 1928-era essays are not your style, we'll have some links to some lovely videos by the YouTube channel Kurtzgesagt, which did three of their episodes, they're about 10 minutes long each, about this question of size and scale and how the world is radically different if you're very, very big or if you're very, very little. It is an animated show. It is delightful, but there is some relatively gruesome imagery, kind of. I mean, kind there are elephants I mean, that explode. There, there are yeah. elephants that fall and explode. So, you know, be aware of that. It's animation, but definitely preview it before you show it to young kids. Absolutely. But you will mention things like if you throw an ant from an airplane, it won't seriously be harmed because gravity doesn't really bother it the same way. Although I am super curious to find out who tested this and how. <laughs> I wonder if it really happened or if it was just a thought experiment by scientists who study ants. Although the Kerkazot channel has a huge series on ants. Like, yes. they are way into ants. I'm pretty sure we linked to one of their videos on ants when we did our episode Oh, when you did Phase, phase four? 4? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I should also mention, as they do in the video, it's called the square cube law because the square of a number and the cube of that number increase in radically different speeds. So I'll, I'll also put a link to the Wikipedia article explaining the square cube law. If you don't know about it, it's fun. Like, math is fun. Like, science is fun. Go science! Go math! If you've been affected by the issues on this show, if you are a square cube, or if you'd like to ask us anything, get in touch with us. Our website is itsjustashow.com. And we're technically still on Twitter for now at itisjustashow. We'd love to hear from you. This show is made possible by listeners like you and like our randomly selected supporter, James. Thank you, James. For as little as $1 an episode, you too can be like James and help us research and record this show. You can also join us on a friendly Discord, where we all hang out and live stream our reactions to new episodes. And you can listen to all our superfan bonus bits. Find out more at itsjustashow.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash itsjustashow. And if you want to follow up with anything that was mentioned today, you'll find links in our show notes at itsjustashow.com slash episode slash 127. Amazing. Colossal. But dead. For he has fallen down and died. Yeah, and the Hoover Dam slash Boulder Dam, that is, that is really big. Like, and they got, <laughs> like, frothing at the bottom. Like, poor Glenn. Poor, what's her toes, his fiance? Carol? <laughs> Carol. It's Carol. Nice. Poor Carol. Well, we'll have to put all that behind us now as we turn to our next episode, where we will be doing Season 3, Episode 19 War of the Colossal Beast. Is this is this a sequel? 
Yes, well, don't worry, because even before we get to that, there's a short to watch. <gasps> I love shorts! Good. You might like this one. It's a, it's sort of an obscure one. It's called Mr. Be Natural. Oh. <laughs> I feel like this one's been re-riffed, Chris, hasn't it? It has indeed. Uh, so, we'll see. I, I feel like we could easily end up spending most of the hour talking about the short and then talking about it more when we cover the re-riffing someday. Well, that sounds perfectly fine with me, because what more do we have to say about an amazing, colossal man? Well, we'll find out when he turns into a colossal beast next time. But until then... Until then... Okay, we're at Grandma's. Get your shoes on. Well, I see he made his quietest with a bear bodkin, whatever that means. Take it away, theme squad. Orangey. Orangey? Orangey. 